0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, we are concluding our series this morning on the heart of Jesus. And for the most part, um, we're going to be doing um, almost, we're going to be, it's an anthology of, of passages we're going to be looking at from Hebrews, but we'll, we'll, we'll root ourselves in Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 5 two, this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, it's all right. It'll be up on the screen for you uh, to read along with me as I read out loud. Hear God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us therefore hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he, that's speaking of Jesus, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This ends the reading of God's holy An errant and infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, we had Nerd Corner last week from the Old Testament, where we looked at the structure of Jeremiah. And so while we were deep in the uh, nerdiness of the major prophets, I figured we'd just go ahead and stay there for this week's illustration. And it, it comes from another book written by Jeremiah called Lamentations. Lamentations, it's a whole book of lament. Lament because the people of Israel are under God's wrath and discipline. The author is pouring his heart out in the book of Lamentations, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, which comes about by the hands of the Babylonians and the horrors of starvation, the horrors of death and hopelessness that there ensued. And Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations pours out his cries to the Lord in five ornately uh, designed poems over five chapters in Lamentations, one in each chapter, and chapters one and two, and then again in verses four and five, each of these chapters are twenty-two verses long, twenty-two sections to the poem. But then chapter three, the middle part of the of the of the book, is instead of twenty-two verses long, is sixty-six verses long, three times longer. With each poem and with passage as a lament, but the high point of the chapter is found in chapter 3. And the middle verse of chapter 3 is verse 33. So it is literally the exact middle of the book, the high point from a literary perspective of the book. And here's what Lamentations chapter 3 verse 33 says, for he, that's speaking of the Lord, for he does not afflict from his heart. Let me read the whole context, picking in verse 31. The Lord will not cast off forever. It's a whole book in context to God's discipline for his people. He will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart. We see here that the same God who brings wrath, yes, who brings discipline, yes, who pours out his justice, yes. We are not denying those things in this series as we look at the heart of Jesus. But it explicitly says that God's wrath pouring forth from his justice does not flow from his heart, from the longings of his heart. His desire, though, instead is compassion, flowing from a heart of what? Steadfast love. He is richly merciful in heart, and while his afflictions are not from his heart. In other words, the Puritans would actually say that God's mercy is his normal work, and his rage, his wrath, is his, as they describe it, his strange work. Here's how Jonathan Edwards puts it Yes, the one whose most famous sermon goes like this. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And here's how Jonathan Edwards talked about God's mercy and his wrath. He said this in referring to Lamentations 3. He said, God has no pleasure, no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He is a God instead that delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. Yes, the Lord is a God of wrath. Yes, he is a God of justice. But the prevailing inclination of his heart is mercy, mercy, mercy. We spent last week and we're going to spend this week looking at the merciful heart of God. And last week we saw that in Jesus, the merciful heart of God is put on display in Jesus' friendship for sinners and then second, his mercy is found in his healing of sinners. And now this week, I want to see the merciful heart of God in the continued mercy of God in what we would call Jesus' intercession for sinners, his intercession. Hebrews is a book very much centering around Jesus, what is called his priestly work, intercession was the role of a priest it would a priest in the old testament would represent god's people before god he would take their sacrifices for sin and bring the blood of bulls and goats into god's presence and plead mercy on their behalf the priest would represent the people of god before god pleading for his mercy and forgiveness. This is what a priest did. And in Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is around this theme that Jesus is the perfect and greater high priest. And in this role as the perfect high priest, we see the merciful heart of God. The merciful heart of God. And I want to see you to see it in two ways coming out of our text this morning. And in the book of Hebrews, the mercy of God for sinners is seen in his intercession, first in his sacrifice, and then second in his sympathy. Let's look at his interceding sacrifice first. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's the role of a priest. And here's what they did. To offer gifts to God and to sacrifice for sins. That they were to atone for our sins through sacrifice. And this is when you bring this up again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It says this, this he there, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. He had to come, in order to represent us, he had to be like us. He had to be made a man like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation is a big word in the Bible, and it essentially means the turning away or the fulfilling, the satisfying of God's wrath. That he does that, he fulfills God's wrath so that nothing is left for his people but God's mercy. And then it goes on to say in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being Tempted. Our sins deserve the judgment of God. But Jesus made sacrifice for us. It is an image here, and talking about sacrifice, in particular the Day of Atonement, where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would place the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but for the sacrificial animals before God the Father in the holy place. And he had earlier laid his hands on an animal, symbolically laying the sins of all the people of Israel on that animal. And then that animal would die in their place, bearing the judgment that they deserved. That's what the priests would do. And they would do this yearly, this grand sacrifice. And they would pour this sacrifice on something called, guess what it was called? The mercy seat of God. That God, your wrath has been poured out over here so that we can receive mercy. And God's wrath would be satisfied. This happens year in and year out. And yet Jesus, we see in the New Testament, is one who brings a sacrifice, not of bulls and goats and sheep, but his sacrifice is whose blood? His blood. The sinless son, the one who John the Baptist calls, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he offers sacrifice so that God's wrath that should have been for us is taken away from us, His very life was spent for us. Hebrews chapter seven I told you this is like we're looking almost the whole, the whole book in some way, shape or form, we're bouncing around. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 26 and 27 says this. says, "For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And here's the type of high priest he is. He is holy. He is innocent." separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. He doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins because he is sinless. And then for those of other people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. He doesn't need to make sacrifices for his sins. He has none. That's why we have a perfect high priest. And then he does it once and for all. We don't sacrifice the, the, the blood animals anymore because we have the sacrifice of Christ, and we will celebrate that this morning. Jesus is the sinless one who dies in our place, who satisfies God's wrath. You didn't wake up this morning going, I bet the number one thing I need is a priest. We would think that that is weird. We would think that is cultic and odd. But indeed, that is exactly what you need, and you have it. There is a high priest even now who is... Taking his sacrifice, the blood that he shed, and bringing it before God the Father, and saying, "There is no wrath for them," because we they we need our consciences cleansed, don't we? We need forgiveness, and we need it today. You need your the wrath that you deserve to be taken away, so that you can be right with God, so that nothing is left for you but the mercy of God. All of this left, and I want you to see, I want you to see that his sacrifice is continual, right? It's continual. Hebrews 7.23 said the former priests were many in number. There was a lot of them because they were prevented by death from continuing in an office. One of the qualifications of functioning as a high priest is you have to be alive. It's assumed that if you're going to function as a high priest to atone for the sins of others, you have to be living. And that's who Jesus is. He is the one who is raised from death so that he may eternally, continually, day in and day out, death cannot get in the way of him interceding on your behalf. Therefore, Jesus is able to save us completely. It means his representation for you before the Father. It has happened. It happened yesterday and the day before, and it happens today, and it will continue for all of eternity. His wounds forever, not just one time, not just one day, not for just certain types of sins, but forever Plead your pardon. Your sins are answered by his wounds. And so you're acceptable today. And he will never cast you out today and tomorrow because you have an interceding high priest who's taken his sacrifices and taken his wounds into the very presence of God. John 1, verse John 1, verse 2 says this, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. So we don't want you to sin. Sin, No bueno. But if anyone does sin, we have this good news. We have an advocate with the Father, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the sign of a court of law. And in the court of law, daily, the evil one would come and say, God, look at your law. He has violated it. She has violated it. And we are on trial before the God, and the enemy is the prosecuting attorney accusing us. But we don't have to plead our own case. We have one who is pleading for us. We don't have to, therefore, make our sins appear smaller than they really are. We don't have to justify them. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to make excuses. We can simply abide by what they are and say, you know what? The evil one is right. I am guilty. I am guilty of these things. We can plead guilty, and the Jesus comes and says, no, no, I have covered their record. I have covered it. See, my, my blood is atoned for their record. And he points instead to his record and to his sacrifice. The defense attorney of Jesus is wonderful because he has never lost a case. When he shows up to the court of law in the presence of God, the evil one groans. He knows the case is lost. And so we have an interceding Jesus, whoever lives to intercede for us for all of eternity. So for those of you who trust in Christ, you get to experience the fullness of his heart, that your sin, your sin actually is covered still today by his interceding sacrifice. But I also want you to see his interceding sympathy for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We see that with Jesus there is sympathy for sinners. He sympathizes with us because he has experienced our suffering. He has experienced the weight and the pain of temptation himself. A doctor can be very caring and can provide medicine, but he doesn't necessarily suffer with us, but this Savior suffers with us. Jesus actually entered into this world to suffer alongside us in our sufferings. Sagittarius Hall at the Capitol, it's been on our TV screens quite a bit, mostly from security camera angles. But if you were to actually be in Statuary Hall at the Capitol, you would find there that there's, oddly enough, lots of statues in Statuary Hall. Every state in the Union gets two statues of various men and women from the history of their state that are, they laud and applaud. The state of one of the, the, the statues representing the state of Hawaii is a man named Father Damien. He is not Hawaiian. In fact, he's not even American. Father Damien was a Belgian. He was a missionary and he went to Hawaii in 1873 to the island of Molokai, where it was a leper's island. Anybody in the whole Asiatic region, oceanic region who had leprosy, that this is the place where they would be shipped. It was a hellhole. It was hell before going to hell. It was awful. It was the place where you go simply to live, a subsistence living where you would simply rot and die. There were no schools there. There was no community, there was no joy, there was nothing, there was no support for anybody. And Father Damien took up the cause. He went to the island of Molokai and there, over the series of a number of years, he started six churches. He started farms so that they could grow fresh food for their subsistence. He organized the people into workforces. They began to have dinners together to celebrate, they had a life and a community together. And then, lo and behold, wouldn't you know, after ten years of laboring with the lepers at Molokai, Father Damien got leprosy himself, and he died. And his statue is in Satuary Hall. His arm is in a sling. His face is withered. And on the statue, he is pockmarked, and he is weathered. In other words, he's a man who entered into the suffering of others. He knew their suffering. He entered into it himself, and so does Jesus. When the brokenness of this world collapses on you, Jesus knows that's suffering. When it happens to all of us, and it will happen to all of us, when a child betrays you, he has experienced betrayal where there is a friend who sits with us, who cries with us, because that is who Jesus is. He has entered into our sufferings with us. Now we could say, okay, that is absolutely true. We've seen that in the series, his earthly life. Look at his tenderness. I mean, I know he goes to the cross, and I know he experiences betrayal, and I know he is gentle, and he heals people, and he's sympathetic in his work, but does he continue on this now? Does he keep doing this? What about now that he is exalted to the highest place in heaven? What about now that he has come to, to sit on the rule and reign in heaven, that he's ascended? Does he still feel this kind of tenderness for us now? Does he actually experience this kind of sorrows and sufferings that we experience now? You see, the answer is yes, he does. You see, when Jesus went to heaven, he is like, is he like us where we say, you know what? Like some of us long to be at, if you're in this stage as a parent, where you go, you know what, I'm done changing diapers. I have paid my dues. I am done getting up in the middle of the night. I have paid my dues. I am done being on the low end of the totem pole at work with all of the, the meandering, uh, menial jobs. I have paid my dues. Is that what Jesus said? I died on the cross, I hung out with a lot of poor people, a lot of lowly sinners, and now I'm in heaven? And I get to be done with all that. I'm out and out of the way of the riffraff. No. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. In other words, that this one, this high priest, even now, he's lowly even now. It means he suffers grievously when you suffer. And this is a continual operation of his sympathy towards you. He didn't stop being gentle and lowly and sympathetic when he went to heaven. He continues it now. When we see the feeling and passions and the affections of the incarnate Jesus, the one who lived here on earth, we see the very heart of Jesus that continues to this day. He shows us his incredible compassion, and his gentle heart is able to be lived out. To lived out because he makes sacrifices for our sins thus dealing with God's right and holy and good and just wrath, but then having made sacrifices for sinners, he then gets to be nothing but sympathetic for who? Just suffers? No. Those who suffer under sin. His sympathy is specifically for sinners, Hebrews 5.2 says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. Why? Because he experienced our temptation yet without sin. In other words, the very place of suffering that we most need him to connect with us, to embrace, to be sorrowful with us is in our sinfulness. You see, we tend to look at people with this, I would say, worldly compassion. You ever had a child who's like this? who is tender and so soft and gentle to a child around him or her who appears to be simply under physical pain or an animal that is under physical pain, they're so gentle, so tender, so compassionate, but their brother or sister who sins against them, they rise up like an angry wolverine in which, right, in other words, there's a difference between compassion for what we believe to be undeserved and the gracious compassion for sinners. For sinners, we go, they brought it on themselves. Look at them and they're, it was years of poor communication. It was years, it was, it was years of kind of living a life and now they're suffering the consequences of it. And you know what, could you keep your problems out of my life, you and your, the suffering of your sin, but not so Jesus. Jesus says, I come to deal with the ignorant. That speaks of those who sin by accident. You ever sin by accident? It wasn't necessarily you meant it, but you had to look back and you go, that was, that was sinful. And then the wayward, that speaks to those who sin on purpose. You ever sinned on purpose? And yet Jesus says, uh, he, he is here, he is able to deal gently with the wayward and the ignorance. He looks on them and deals gently with them. And why is Jesus able to deal gently with, and sympathetically with sinners? What's it say? Hebrews 5.2 says, because he was beset with weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15 says, he too has been tempted as we have, yet without sin. That means Jesus experienced exhaustion. You've been exhausted and sinned out of exhaustion. Physical pain, he experienced that. He experienced the longings of body. His blood pressure dropped when he didn't have enough food. He was tempted and he was tried, and in all this he was sinless. Now, I'm not gonna lie. Here's, Here's how I've always this has always fallen hollow to my heart until I begin to think about this this week. Don't you want to raise your hand and be like, you know what, I feel like this is, a, this is an unfair comparison. He was perfect. I'm not perfect. He, he was fully man, yes, but he was also fully God. I feel like that's cheating. Don't you feel like that's cheating? And we say, well, how, how did he experience all of my temptations? All of my... Understand this, he did, and actually he experienced temptation far, far, far worse than you ever have. You see, the one who feels the force of temptation the strongest is the one who does not give in. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. You ever seen young boys do challenges of physical feats in which it's all about who can beat out, their, who can have the highest pain tolerance? Like you, I guess this is, this is an old school game, but the kids would play bloody knuckles, where you would whack rulers against your knuckles to see who could handle the most amount of beatings until your knuckles became bloody? Or have you ever played the game where you can see who can hold their hands over the flame the longest? Who's the loser? The loser is the one who only holds it there for a few seconds. Who's the winner? The one who holds it there the longest. And why is he the winner? He is the one who has actually proven himself to be the toughest, why? Because he has endured what? The most pain in which he has been willing to endure the flicker of the fire more, he actually knows the true heat of the flame. And therefore, Jesus, by not giving in to temptation, knows actually the full force of it. Way more than you and I do. You see, we deal with temptation like Mark Twain did. What Mark Twain said, he said, I deal with temptation by giving in to it. And that is the approach most of us have taken. Jesus knows the power of sin not by sinning, but he knows the power, he knows the power of sin, not by sinning and giving into the temptation, but by not sinning. It says this actually in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, in the call for us to resist sin. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And in other words, he's saying, you haven't really put up much of a fight like Jesus did. You say, Where did Jesus shed blood in his fight against sin? You ever know, you know the garden? In other words, Jesus experiences the stress of temptation, the sorrow of temptation, the pain of temptation, the pressure pushing down upon them so much so that he sweated beads of blood. And so when he looks on the ignorant and the wayward, he feels sympathy because he actually knows what you're feeling. He has felt it. And so the mercy of Jesus is with you, is with you and for you against your sin see our greatest source of suffering is not car accidents is not diseases the greatest source of our suffering is our sin he loves our person even while he hates our sin and he hates our sin just like a father hates the cancer that ravages his child's body and which he, will, he goes i will do anything to eradicate that that d- disease in my child and so he has that same feeling towards your sin, the cancer of your sin in your life. And yet, far from making him go, ah, this presence of sin in my child's life makes me resist that child. No, actually what it does is it incites his very heart towards moving towards his child who is suffering under sin. If your child had cancer, do you move and resist that child and say, oh, I can't stand to be near them because they are defiled by sin? No it makes you actually move towards them even more. And so that is Jesus' response to his children. And so what that does is allows us to go, God, I admit my sin, because by the very admittance and the very presence of sin in my life, it inflames his heart of mercy towards us. So let me see if you understand this, because this is critical for your growth as a Christian, to walk in love and joy. I'm gonna ask it this way. When you sin and you know it, what do you think Jesus' heart response is to your sin? Is it flared nostrils and a hard jaw? Is it to move towards you with intimidation? Is that his response? Do not get me wrong, even God is displeased by your sin. He is grieved by your sin. We are not running here with the ridiculous notion that God is fine with your continued sin, that there is no displeasure in God. People will say that. God God never gets angry at you. Ah, yeah, he does. He does get angry. He does get angry. He is displeased with sin. But how does he feel about you? Yes, he's displeased with your sin, but his feeling for you towards sinners is one of mercy. Let me see if I can show you the displeasure of God going hand in hand with his mercy. He, Hosea chapter 11, verse seven through nine. It says this. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high God, he shall not raise them up at all. In other words, this is God speaking, we, we call it anthropomorphically. My response to your sin is I will not respond <laughs> When you, even when you cry out to me, but he, then he says this, but oh, how can I give you up, O oh Ephraim? Remember, that's like God's pet name for Israel. How can I hand you over, O oh Israel? How can I make you like Adma? Being Adma is bad. And like Zeboim, that's also bad. He, here's what it says. This is God's heart. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows tender and warm. And so he says, I will not execute my burning anger. Do you see it? Yes, there's displeasure. But what rises above the displeasure is the holy mercy of God. What does he go on to say? I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. We always connect God's holiness to his wrath. But what do we see here? His holiness is... He's, you see, his holiness is the adjective that reflects all of his other character aspects. He is holy in wrath, he is holy in just, but guess what? He is also holy in mercy, and he is holy in grace. The key observation is this, it is in consideration of people's sins. It is in looking at sinners, even in the midst of our sins, that it incites his compassion towards us. His compassion grows warm and tender. As a response to our sins, your sins rather than repulsing God incites Him to move towards you. This is why Romans five twenty Paul can so blatantly say, "Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more." The guilt and shame of those who are in Christ are is ever outstripped by His abounding grace. When we feel as if our thoughts and words and deeds are diminishing God's grace to us, those sins and failures are in fact actually the thing that causes his heart to surge towards his children. And the sweep of the whole biblical storyline should cause us to be caught up and catch our breath. The sins of those who belong to God actually open up the floodgates of his heart. Such that it's not your loveliness that causes him to move towards you, but it's actually your unloveliness. Oh, the mercy of God. Let me bring out three exhortations as we close. One, and this is incredibly important, believing that such a merciful heart is found only in Jesus is the only way to receive mercy. The mercy of his intercessory sacrifice is for those who trust in Christ and in Christ alone. His heart towards sinners abounds with mercy, but you must embrace Christ. Again, we must bear in mind there's an all in crucial difference and distinction between those not in Christ and those in Christ. If you have Christ, you have mercy that will never end. If you don't have Christ, There is nothing left for you but wrath. For those who do belong to him, your sins actually invoke mercy. To those who do not belong to Jesus, then your sins evoke wrath. So life by yourself, life that says, I do not cling to the mercy of Jesus, is a life that says, I want God to treat me based on my own record. But he he extended his mercy by providing a way out of your record. He longs to draw you in, but you must trust in him. So have you trusted in him? If you would like to do that, we'll pray at the end. We're going to come to the table, and I would say, it's simply saying, God, my record stinks. <laughs> I need your mercy. And believing that when you cry out in that way, he runs towards you. Second, believing that such a merciful heart is eternally found in Jesus is the act is the act of holding fast to the faith. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, where we began our passage this morning, said this Since the, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's his ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, let us therefore hold fast to our confession. What does perseverance as a Christian look like? It's holding fast to the mercy of God. That's what it looks like. It's waking up every day and saying, I cling to your mercy. I confess my sin. I confess today, even more than yesterday, than my realization of how desperately I need your mercy. Hold fast to your confession, because he holds fast to you as your sympathetic high priest. Hold fast to him. This is your Christian life. Third and final exhortation, believing that such a merciful heart is found in Jesus is the prompting to come to him in prayer. Hebrews 4, verse 16, one more time. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I've read probably eight, nine books on prayer in my life. I've only had one that made me actually want to pray. Many others, it was telling me I need to pray and I have to pray and how to pray. There's one that made me want to pray. A book by Paul Miller named called The Praying Life. Because in that book, he so focuses on God's heart towards us that I go, why would I go anywhere else? I want to spend time with him. And unless you believe that Jesus' mercy is actually as great and grand, even in response to your sin, unless you believe that, you won't come to him. If you believe that when you screw up his heart for you is to hold you at arm's length, then you will stay at arm's length. Instead, we are, to, we are called here, we are wooed into his presence with confidence to draw near to him because he says, no, when I see your sin, yes, the sin that you committed yesterday and a thousand days before that, and you're sick of it, and I am grieved by it, but my heart moves towards you and so you come to him. Draw near to him because he has sympathy for you. When you sin, kids, the best place for you to go is to go in confession. Not to beat yourself up, but to cry out to him for mercy. Jesus does not have buyer's remorse when it comes to you. Jesus Christ is not annoyed by your continued need of mercy and grace. He is not... Have pertur- you ever had this as a parent? I'm sorry for all the parenting illustrations. But when you fed your kid all day and they come to you again and go, I'm hungry still. And they're just like, they're just followed by a litter of like food trails. And so what do you do as a parent? You say, when you're like, fine, go find some more food in the kitchen. And we think that maybe this is how, what? You already ran out of grace? I gave you some yesterday. That's not his heart for you. His heart is, I have Listen, there's a banqueting feast. We are not Oliver Twist going, more gruel, please, in front of God, asking for mercy. He longs to give you mercy, and so he delights to pour out his mercy and grace for you. And so my call to you is to come, come, trusting his mercy to save you from wrath. Come and hold fast to the one who holds fast to you, and come crying, mercy, God, mercy. And you can do so because Jesus doesn't simply possess mercy and hold a bank account of mercy. Jesus is mercy. He is an endless well. Understand that his sacrifice was perfect. Interceding sacrifice, it was perfect. It is therefore bought for you an endless spring of mercy. But also his heart of sympathy is endless as well. How does Ephesians 2 verse 4 put it? God Being rich in mercy. Being, he's not becoming, not having. Being, his essence. This is referring to his nature and to his heart. Understand this. Jesus does not purchase for you a specific amount of mercy. He is mercy. And therefore, to have Jesus is to have mercy eternally. If mercy was something simply he had, while his deepest nature was actually something different, there would be a limit on how much mercy he could extend to you. But he actually is mercy. To have Christ is to have mercy and to have it eternally. And therefore, Micah seven eighteen can say he delights in mercy. And Ephesians 2 can say he is rich in mercy. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. He is an endless well that you'll never run to the end of. You could say it this way. The gross domestic product of Jesus' heart is mercy. It is always what is being produced.